0: When I was in high school, I had the most profound thought that still sticks with me today. If Jesus was man, did he have body odor? And when he farted, how bad did that smell? See, he came in the flesh in a real form, in a point in history. Because this God we believe in is not a God who creates and then leaves the world to do its thing. And he's not a God who sets us out on a journey and says, good luck, I'll see you at the end. He's a God who walks with us, who is for us, who interacts with the way this
1: world works
0: so that we can meet him in our everyday
1: moments. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, And that's okay because faith is not about having it all figured out and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before he'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Good morning. It
0: is very good to be here with you today. For those of you joining who don't know who I am, my name's Adam, and I'm the pastor here at The Point. Have you ever taken a moment to think about how strange we as Christians are? Like, not just you and me as people, because I've met enough of you to know we're all really weird, but like, collectively as Christians, the things we believe and that we say change who we are or how we live. Have you thought about how strange that is? Like, think for a moment about why we're here today. We believe a man 2,000 years ago was killed as a criminal and somehow rose from the dead, and because of that, we can gather. That in itself should be enough to be kind of strange. But then we believe this wasn't just an ordinary man, but God himself. H- have you ever met somebody who's claimed to be God? What do we call those people? Slightly off. All right, I- I've met a few people who have thought that they are God. Uh, I've met a few people who've thought that they are Jesus Christ himself incarnate for us. And when we meet people like this, we say, that's bizarre. So imagine now Jesus coming on the scene and beginning his ministry and his life at the age of 30, telling everybody that he's the son of God. How weird that 2,000 years later we still believe him. The early church having witnessed his life and his death and his resurrection wrestled with, how do we describe this man who's also God in a way that is true, but also that is approachable? How do we talk about this weird concept we believe in of this God who's three persons that are totally separate yet completely the same? How do we talk about that? So we as Christians, we believe in what's called the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this concept of the Trinity really confuses a lot of non-Christians. See, most religions around the world believe in a God who interacts with humanity. Maybe not a single God, maybe a lot of gods. There's a whole host of different gods, and the level and degree to which they interact with humanity changes depending on which faith you're in. And other religions like Judaism and and later Islam believe there's only one God and there can't be more than one God. And any assertion that there are multiple gods would automatically be blasphemy. And so the early church wrestled with how do we take what Jesus taught us and teach it in a way that is true and approachable. See, they lived in a culture that was kind of torn While they lived in a predominantly Jewish culture because Jesus was a Jewish man, uh, because they lived in that culture and and they were trying to reach out to Jewish people, they had to emphasize the oneness of God. And yet, for the pagan culture, the non-Jewish culture, most people thought these Christians were bizarre that they would narrow God to just one or maybe three beings, because for them, they saw so many gods as an avenue to receive blessing, as an opportunity to find the divine, so many paths to say just one was right, well, that, that would have been too narrow-minded. Closed off. You should be more open to different ways of thinking. So the church wrestling with how do we talk about these gods, three in one, the same God yet different, They they wrestled with the words to say, and as early as the second century, we began to see in writing these words that were in that video, the words of the Apostles' Creed. The church saying, this is the God we believe in, the one who we believe is for us, who's with us, who's continuing to restore us and make us new today. So last week in this series, it's personal, we looked at God the Father, a creator almighty who is for us, who is loving, who is all-powerful, and therefore we can come before him with every need, with every care, with every burden. And today we're going to look at that second person of the trinity, the second person that makes up the whole. Now, have any of you ever attempted the task of describing the trinity to somebody who's not a Christian? Anyone? I didn't think so. All right, maybe a handful, but for the most part, we just kind of ignore it like that's the way it is, but don't ask questions because I get really confused really quick. I have a degree from a seminary, and if you ask me too many questions, I'll feel the same way, okay? If you find yourself confused and a little overwhelmed by this concept of the Trinity, know that you're in good company because for 2,000 years, the church has said, what exactly is this? How does this work? And as the church has attempted to describe it throughout the years, there have been a lot of different analogies that have been used. And the problem is every analogy to describe God falls short. So maybe you've heard the analogy like, the Trinity is like an apple, right? The apple has the skin and then the actual flesh of the apple and then the core. And and that's like the Trinity, except the problem is the apple skin is not the same as the apple core. They're very different. In fact, if you handed me the apple core to eat, I would probably wonder either what's wrong with you or why do you not love me? The idea of it being like an apple is kind of confusing because they're never the same, they're always different. And yet, in the Trinity, somehow, mysteriously, they are the same. Or sometimes it's been used like a relationship. Maybe I myself, I am a brother, and I am a father, and I am a husband. And those three different relationships change the way I interact. I will interact with my sisters very different than I will with my wife. At least in most parts of the country, that's the way it works, right? And and so, some people say, well, the Trinity is just like these different relationships, but the problem with that is, when we separate as different relationships, we forget that they're always still the same, And, and not only are they still the same, they actually function very differently. So how do we describe the Trinity? Well, my favorite analogy, which falls short because they all do, I like to think of this three-in-one God like a flame. Because throughout Scripture, God often describes himself as an all-consuming fire. He describes himself like a flame. He He even led the people in the Old Testament through pillars of fire. And so if we think of God like a flame, a flame requires heat and energy and light. All three can be separately measured, all three can be separately identified, and yet, without any one of those, you don't have a flame. They're fully present to have a flame. Now, for those of you who are smarter than me, you can find lots of loopholes in that analogy, that's, that's fine. But I like to think about this concept that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in some mysterious way all the same and fully present and all totally different in ways that we don't always comprehend. So as the church wrestled with this language and they wanted to say, how do we identify the difference? How do we spell out who this God is in a way that other people can understand? They did something in the creed that is really important to us 2,000 years removed. See, in this creed that they spelled out and then later in two other creeds, the church expanded upon this first one They spelled out not just any Jesus, not just any man throughout history, but a very specific man, a man who entered into history at a very specific point in time and did real and tangible things. These are the words of the creed, if you're not familiar. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. It's the first part of how they describe Jesus. And they say, we believe in this specific Jesus. See, what makes Christianity unique in the world is not just our understanding of this three-in-one God, but that God never just came and spoke and then left us. God didn't just tell us what to do and then say, now figure it out. We actually believe God came to be among us at a very specific point in history. And not just among us as God would be in our midst, but rather as a human born of flesh. See, there are other religions that believe God came down in flesh, but in each case they believe God came in flesh through the same natural processes you and I might bear children. No, that's not what we believe. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, And this is important for us to see who is this Jesus and why 2,000 years later should we care? Because this Jesus, being born of the Holy Spirit, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is one that is unlike any other. Who can you name who was born to a virgin? None. And not only that, the Old Testament promised the one who was to come, who would be the Messiah. A fancy Hebrew term for the savior, the one who would redeem and restore all people and all of creation. The one who would come had to be born of a virgin because throughout scripture, sin, that brokenness within each one of us and the brokenness in this world around us, that desire to do what is wrong or that desire to say something hurtful when we ourselves are hurt, that nature that we are born with throughout scripture comes through dads so if you are here and you have a biological father whether you know him or not you were born completely sinful which means babies as cute as they may be are not innocent and that's harsh to hear sometimes because we like to think of babies as innocent and then you have a kid and you hear them screaming simply because they can and you realize pretty early on they're just a replica of all of your brokenness babies like myself are not perfect And so if you have a human father and are born in the flesh by a human father, you take on a genetic trait that every one of us bears, that of brokenness. And not only brokenness, an inclination to perpetually do what is wrong, what brings us or others pain. So this specific Jesus, being born of a virgin, was born unlike us, without an inclination to sin, Without the baggage that comes from all of our sin, without an inherent brokenness, he was born that from a child he could do what was right in all circumstances, every time. And this specific Jesus, he didn't just come, no, it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, a man we can look at in history. We can see non-Christian sources and say this man existed in a time frame. And we can study and say, was this Jesus real? He's not just a figment of our imagination. He's not just a good construct to help us feel good about ourselves or in some cases to remind us how much we suck and need to improve. No, this Jesus actually existed and walked on the same roads that people walk today and ate foods like you and I. And when I was in high school, I had the most profound thought that still sticks with me today. If Jesus was man, did he have body odor? And when he farted, how bad did that smell? See, he came in the flesh in a real form, in a point in history. Because this God we believe in is not a God who creates and then leaves the world to do its thing. And he's not a God who sets us out on a journey and says, good luck, I'll see you at the end. He's a God who walks with us, who is for us, who interacts with the way this world works so that we can meet him in our everyday moments. We're going to come back to the creed here in a moment, but first, let's look at some scripture. The first place in scripture I want to look at is John chapter 10. See, Jesus in chapter 10, and for that matter, most of the gospels, makes proclamations. He declares things about himself that make the religious leaders super uncomfortable. And and they're really uncomfortable in large part because their perception of God was being challenged. At times, the things he challenges are their traditions and their rituals and the norms. At other times, it's the very concept of who this God is that they believe in. So here's one of those places in chapter chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews who heard it, they picked up stones again to stone him. See, Jesus, he throughout the Gospel of John and throughout the other Gospels makes this bold declaration. I'm not different than my Father. I'm exactly like him. I'm one. Now for Jewish people, you need to understand why this claim of Jesus would be so Uh, infuriating and even worthy of being stoned to death one of the most important verses in all of the old testament for jewish people still to this day is deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 and in this god is speaking to the people and he says hear O israel the lord your god the lord is one and then he, proceed, or he, he follows that afterwards. After that, that proclamation, I'm God and I am one, he begins to speak of the way in which they interact and the ways in which he'll bless and the ways in which this God will be for them for all of time. So when Jesus repeatedly says, I and the, fa- and the Father are one, that echoes of this same verse, this idea of him being God, being like God and being with God and being God in the full sense. And that was blasphemy. And in fact, if you look back at John chapter five, another time where they're mad at him, it says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And it continues after that in verse 19 to describe the authority of Jesus. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And Jesus, he would repeatedly make these claims, everything I'm doing is what my father does. And that would offend them. See, and he would demonstrate this to be true in all sorts of ways. So in the gospel of Matthew, we see from Matthew's perspective, Jesus demonstrating that he and the Father are one because Matthew repeatedly points to the Old Testament, the prophecies and the promises and says, look at how Jesus fulfilled these. And in Mark, we see that Jesus has this great power over all supernatural. In fact, the very first thing in Mark to recognize Jesus as the son of God is a demon crying out, have mercy on me, spare me. Time and time again in Mark, Mark spells out this picture that Jesus has authority over all spiritual things. And in Mark specifically, there's this call. If we are to be Christian or to follow Jesus, we need to walk a path like Jesus. We need to become like him. Now, as a little aside, if you don't know this about the Gospels, these are four eyewitness accounts. And who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Any guesses? Mark. And I also heard Peter. Well done. Mark wrote it, but Mark wasn't one of the disciples. You see, Mark traveled with Peter And Peter recounted this story of being with Jesus. And Mark wrote it down. The first that we have in writing approximately 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. We have the earliest accounts of Mark's writing, Peter's story. And I find it as an interesting side note, uh, fascinating that Mark's account of discipleship and following Jesus repeatedly shows the disciples totally blowing it and messing up over and over and over again. Even to the point where some argue the ending of Mark shows that when Jesus rises from the dead and says, go and tell, instead they run away in fear and do nothing. And it's no coincidence that Peter's account would be filled with the reminder of just how much the disciples blew it. Because when you read any of the Gospels, Peter's the one who kind of acts as a figurehead who speaks on behalf of the group and every time he opens his mouth... He inserts his foot because I shouldn't have said that. In Luke, we have this eyewitness account of who Jesus was that focuses on the reality he's not just for the Jews. He's for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. And Luke, he focuses on this by demonstrating Jesus' power through miracles and those who are lame beginning to walk and those who can't speak beginning to talk and those who can't see having sight and even the wind and the waves begin to obey Jesus. He demonstrates that he and the Father are exactly the same by doing things only the creator can do. Imagine standing on a, a lake as a storm is raging and just speaking in the wind, ceasing like that. We're seeing a crowd of people who are desperate for the things you're teaching, eager to hear you speak, and they're hungry. So you take 12 loaves of bread and a few fish, and you break it and feed several thousand. Only God can do such things. And not only does he demonstrate that Jesus is for all people through his eyewitness account, All of these different accounts demonstrate that Jesus can do things only God can do. Like the story where there's some friends who, uh, they have a friend who's lame and he can't walk, and so they take off a part of the roof and lower him down to where Jesus is at. Which first off, if somebody took this roof off so they could like come in and meet us, I'd be really intrigued how did they get up there? And then how are we going to pay to fix that? Right? And so they, they lower him down, and Jesus sees this man, and he says, because of their faith, your sins are forgiven. And the Jewish people get really offended, and it says they weren't even saying it. They're just thinking, how can he forgive sin? And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, acknowledges, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk, so that you may believe the Son of Man has authority to, to forgive sins? I say to you, get up and walk, and the man does. But for Jewish people, only God could forgive us of our sin. Time and time again, Jesus demonstrates that the Father and him are equal, that they are 100% equal. There's no distinction or separation like Jesus giving up part of who he was as God to be only man. In fact, this really offended a lot of people when he died. How could God die? And and so there are some who say, well he didn't die, it just looked like he died. And then he was miraculously healed after that. And, And there are others who say God's spirit left him, that his flesh might die. And others who say it was all a hoax and none of it's real. See, how do we reconcile that God himself would see this broken world and say, I will do whatever it takes to restore it. And if the very thing this broken world requires is death of one who is sinless, then I myself will do that to redeem it. Who is this God who would even suffer crucifixion? The most humiliating, the most embarrassing, the most shameful death known to man at the time. Brutally painful. Who is this God who would take that on for this broken world? Now to further demonstrate who Jesus was, let's continue in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, he spells out who is Jesus by saying this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, real quick, that may be kind of strange to you and me, but there was a philosophy at the time that said God doesn't exist in the physical and in the flesh. In fact, God is the spiritual, the supernatural. And the way you find this supernatural is through divine word. And this divine word will reveal itself to you and you can actually separate your physical desires and physical self so you can be at a more spiritual place. So John, he takes the same language used to describe that concept. That says the physical is all evil and God is different and set apart and unlike the physical. And he uses that same exact language to describe in the beginning was this word. And the word was with God. The word was God. And then he goes on and he says this, verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. This word he talks about was there in the beginning. All the way back in the beginning. See, John begins in the same way that Genesis does. In the beginning, God created. And John, he says, this word there in the beginning, this intellect, this divine revelation, this spirit of God was there then. And he continues in a really uncomfortable way. In verse 14, he says this. And the word became flesh, And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And up until this point, those who were believing this philosophy that God was distant and our best approach to him was to separate from any physical attachment or desire or any physical love or anything that we can cling to suddenly this word, this divine revelation became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God is not distant looking down upon us, but he's among us and he's part of us. He's here in our midst today. He's for us and he isn't going anywhere. In fact, the word used for made his dwelling, that dwelling there, you could also say he tented, like God went camping to come and be with us. And think back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. This tent that they built, that wherever they went, they could be reminded God was with them and for them. The message version of the, the, the Bible translates this, to God moved into the neighborhood. He became here with us and for us. And in him we see the fullness of God, all of God's glory, All of God's goodness, everything of who God the Father is, we see in Jesus. Now we're going to fast forward to John chapter 14. But before we do, let's look at the second half of that creed. We put it up. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Who is this Jesus that we believe in? Who is this second person of this three in one? He's not only the one who came in history, who took on flesh, who became one of us. No, he's also the God who died and rose again. He descended into hell and conquered death itself. And then he ascended into heaven and he sits there. Not he will sit there, not he did sit there. He sits there at the right hand of God the Father. And from there he will come again to judge the living and the dead. You see, as they were describing who is this God we believe in, the first portion of Jesus was he was real in history. And the second portion is this is what he's done and is doing and will forevermore be doing. And this second portion we can often describe as his kingdom. So when we pray, your kingdom come, what we're asking for is for God to sit enthroned on a a throne to reign and rule, not only over this broken world, but over and within each one of us. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're asking for the same God who suffered and died and then rose again to be the one who rules over everything in our lives. It's pretty common here in the South to talk about Jesus as our savior, but how often are we comfortable with Jesus as our king? Because with a king, everything is under his submission. Everything is given over to him. All of our stuff belongs to him. All of our attitudes and our actions belong to him. All of our emotions and our feelings, all of our thoughts and our reason, everything we have and everything we are belongs to him. Which means anything we want to keep for ourselves, say, God, you can have parts of me, but not that part. Anything we want to keep for ourselves and say, God, you can have all of me as long as it goes this way and not that way. Anything we want to hold back means we see him as less than king. So let's go back to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, he's describing how he's preparing to die. He's getting ready to go and and to do the very work his father sent him to. And he's going to leave, and when he leaves, they will be left without him for a while. And his disciples are a little confused. First off, they'd never yet met a Messiah who died and then rose again. In fact, Jesus was not the first man to claim to be Messiah. For the previous several hundred years, multiple people had said, I'm the Messiah. And every single time, the way they proved it is they tried to rise up in power and conquer the the Roman government that was over Israel because the Messiah would set the people free. And every single time they tried to rise up and conquer, you know what happened? They died. They died. And then all of their disciples scattered and were afraid because their life was next. They had led a revolt unsuccessfully, which meant they were criminals according to the law. Every single previous Messiah who claimed he would come would come in power. But Jesus, he says, I'm about to die. And they said, hold on, that can't happen. Surely that won't be the case. And then when he says he's going away, in verse 6, When asked, well, how will we know where you are going? How can we find you? He says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says, if you want to know how to connect with God the Father, it's through me. And this, 2,000 years ago, was radically uncomfortable and still to this day makes a lot of people really offended. How can you say Jesus is the only way? Well, I'll tell you. Has anybody else died and risen from the dead? Has anybody else come back on their own accord and by their own power? Not to my knowledge. And so Jesus, he says, I'm the only way to the Father. If you want to know God, you only know him through me. Coming up in a few weeks, we're going to begin to talk this fall about what the life of a Christian looks like as you grow in faith and and what it looks like to say, God, I want you to be king over every aspect of my life. And part of that, part of that is recognizing that to be a Christian has to start with being with Jesus. See, coming on Sunday morning or or doing your, your church things during the week or talking about Jesus, but not actually following him, if you never spend time with him, you're going to wildly miss out on the Father who loves you. So for you and me, we have to be with him. And as we're with him, we slowly begin to become like him. See, people have that effect on us. The people we're around transform us and change us. Not that they make us suddenly perfect or without any blemish, but rather we begin to take on the characteristics and the traits and the lifestyle of the people we're around. Jesus, he said, look, I am the way and the truth and the life. And what we see in the book of Acts is that the people who followed Jesus were later identified as the ones following the way. This way of walking with God, this way of seeing Jesus in their midst, of hearing the things he spoke and holding to them as true, this way of believing that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not just names we throw out, but real persons of the same God actively moving still to this day. We'll go on a little bit later in John chapter 15 and this is where we will end today. Jesus in declaring who he is says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, one of the prophets, uh, there's a a song that's written about God coming and and this vineyard that's planted, and he works so hard at this vineyard, and when it comes time for harvest, all that he finds is wild grapes. And so, because they were worthless and not good for anything, he burns the whole vineyard and destroys it. And, And now, Jesus says, I'm the true vine, because that, that, That story in Isaiah was about God's people, Israel, and the nation of Israel, the Jewish people who were called to be unlike the rest of the world, set apart, living a different life, and yet they continued to want to be just like everybody else. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's speaking to his hearers, I am the fulfillment of what should have always been, the way to walk with God and be with him. And we're going to come back to this chapter in a few weeks and spend much more time looking at it. But this is the promise Jesus says Abide in me, and I in you. If you want your life to bear fruit, if you want your life to grow and to look different than it did before, I don't mean without pain and without suffering because pruning is by no means an easy process. But if you want your life to be filled with all the fruits of the Spirit, with love and joy and patience, with peace and kindness, with goodness and gentleness and even self-control, if you want your neighbors to see Jesus in you and to see your faith not as something you talk about but something that truly changes you, not to be a better person, but to love well. If you wanna see this, it starts with abiding in Jesus, with being connected to the one who loves you. And when we're connected with him, we're in turn connected with all of his kingdom. And we can begin to see in this life his kingdom come so that the people who normally would fill us with anger or bitterness or even sorrow are now people that we can love Because we've been loved. The things we used to do that would create division in our relationships and hardship in our families, we now can see those aren't healthy. We can begin to be aware of ways to become healthy. When we abide in him, I love this verse, verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. See, to be clean was to be made one without sin, to be made holy or set apart, to be fully forgiven in the eyes of God. You and I don't need to bear fruit or change or look any different in order to get God's love. But because he suffered, because he died, and because he rose again, and now he sits enthroned on high, because he's the king over all things, whatever he has spoken is true always. So when he looks at you and he sees all of your pain and your brokenness and your past that you're ashamed of, he says today, you are clean by the words I've spoken. You're made new already. And when he looks at you and all the struggles you're walking through, he says to you, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And all of his promises and all of his goodness and all of his truth are for you and for me today. Will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you that you would reveal yourself through your son, that you would come down from that throne to take on flesh, to become like us in every way, to suffer and to die. God, we thank you that as you spoke, you have risen from the dead, and you today still are the one who is risen who is seated on the throne, who reigns over all things. We ask that you would teach us to trust in you, to believe in your goodness, that everything you spoke has come true, and may we look forward to your return when we shall be judged, whether living or dead, we shall be judged as those who already have been made clean, not by the things we do, but by the words you've spoken. Teach us, God, to surrender everything to your reign, to walk in your kingdom, to know your faithfulness and your goodness, and to begin to bear fruit, that others also might see how much you love and grow to desire you too. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. As we continue our worship this morning, we're going to collect an offering. If you came prepared today to give an offering either with cash or check, you can put that in the popcorn buckets in the back as you leave. And if you came prepared today to give a gift online, you can do so at the by clicking on the little teal button in the bottom corner. Now last week I said that our coffee pots that are 11 years old are slowly not working like they used to. And so um, we are in the process of replacing them and buying two new coffee brewers and also plumbing them in so we can have filtered water and they'll taste better and be cleaner. It'll be wonderful. So if you are somebody who likes coffee, I just want to start by saying last week I asked and uh, several of you responded. So, so far towards our $1,500 goal, we got about $400 given uh, towards that co- those coffee pots. So if you like coffee and would love to help us continue to provide great coffee or maybe even better coffee for a long time to come and you would like to give an extra gift above and beyond your normal towards that, uh, you can also do that in the popcorn buckets by just writing on the envelope that it's for coffee or online by putting a memo there saying you want to help buy some new coffee pots. Uh, However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Now every week we invite questions and do our best to respond. And before you get into the questions, uh, Emily asked me a question earlier this week. And I said, no, that's not important. And I realized I was wrong. Uh, So you asked, should we also announce the start of the youth group? And I said, no, 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 let's start next week announcing that. And then I looked out today, and there's a lot of high schoolers and middle school students, so I don't want any of you to miss this. If you are uh, in middle school or high school, and you would like to get together with other peers and have a good time and have some food, and realize that this is a place for you as well, starting August 15th, right after church, we will have some food for you. And then uh, starting in September, twice a month, immediately after church, we're going to gather so you guys can connect with friends and connect with Jesus together. So if that's you, mark your calendars. It's going to be great. I believe. Um, (laughs) All right, now to the questions.
2: Yes. Um, We have a handful. I'm going to start with what might be my favorite question ever. I don't
0: know. That's a big big question.
2: Were there mosquitoes in Jesus' time? If so, did they know not to bite Jesus? Or did they bite him and then spread his blood to others? Were those people immediately saved? Did the mosquitoes take the very first communion before it was a thing?
0: Whoa. Mind blown. Uh, the answer is yes, there were mosquitoes. I've never been to Israel, so I don't know how prevalent mosquitoes are in Israel. Um, but that's certainly a doozy that I, I can't speak to beyond that. I don't that know. That
2: could be like a four-part series. Yeah. yeah.
0: Next sermon series.
2: <laughs> um, next question. Um, does the Celtic try not, it is Celtic, right? Not Celtic? Uh,
0: yes i think so i
2: was like going back and forth all morning okay uh represent the father son and holy spirit
0: yes so throughout uh, the last two thousand years there's been a lot of imagery that has been used to try to uh, depict this three in one and that's one of them it's beautiful and i don't have it up here because i wasn't expecting that maybe we'll throw it up there next week to show you
2: it's a part of the image it's not there now, but, like, it's oh. part of the image. So, like, they were looking at I it all morning. Yeah. it was there, but okay. then it wasn't. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, next question. Knowing that Jesus was a craftsman slash carpenter, did he cuss when he hit his finger with the hammer?
0: Or did he never miss the nail? Oh. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs>
2: um, next question. In the Apostles' Creed, it says sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Can you explain that a little more? How does that work and what does right hand mean?
0: Yeah, uh, how does it work? I don't know. Uh, What does right hand mean? Well... Uh, The the image there was the right-hand man, the one sitting at the right hand of whoever was king, uh, was equal in power or at least the go-to person. So you have a question, you don't disturb the king, you go to that person and they act as the person in authority on behalf of the the one sitting on the throne. So the fact that he's sitting on the right hand of God the Father, um, what does that mean? Because we also see in Revelation and other places Jesus himself sitting on the throne, I think that falls in the category of this mystery that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit still reign and rule together, and yet uh, Jesus has promised that at his name every knee will bow, and so he is the king, and he also sits next to the Father because he only does what his Father does and acts with his Father's authority in all things. I hope that helps.
2: Um, This next question, I've never thought about this before. Why does it say rose again in the Apostles' Creed? When did he rise the first time? Or does that just mean he was alive again?
0: Yes. So I was asked that question earlier this week, and I thought I've never thought about that. So I don't know if this was sent in earlier this week, and they also asked me in person, or if somebody new had the same thought. Um, Either way, I think it says rose again, not to imply that he'd risen from the dead multiple times but rather uh, that he was again alive and he had risen, or he is risen still to this day.
2: Um, Okay, this next question is uh, not about the creed. So how do you become healthy in a relationship if the other person isn't healthy or willing? If you're ready to fix it in love, but the other is not?
0: It's a great question. Um, First and foremost, I would say if you're not married, you should probably end that relationship because it's not going to get much better uh, through marriage. In fact, marriage will make it tougher. If you are married and you're in this difficult place of wanting to love your spouse and grow together and they maybe aren't interested, uh, 1 Corinthians talks about that. Paul, he says, look, as long as it is up to you, if you're married to an unbeliever, stay married. And and I'm going to, clarify by that. Uh, We live in the South where a lot of people believe in Jesus, but very few people follow him. And so if you're married to somebody who doesn't want to spend any time with Jesus or doesn't want to become like Jesus, uh, doesn't want to be changed by Jesus, the best thing you can do is focus on how can you become a healthy person and how can you be changed by Jesus. Uh, There may be through that an opportunity where your spouse asks questions or engages in the process. There may be through that the opportunity to spend more time in prayer on behalf of your spouse. Um, Or there may be through that the opportunity to be encouraged by other Christians who can tell you it's gonna be okay. And right now when things aren't okay, we're here with you and we care about you. Um, So how can you do it? I say begin on focusing on your own health and seek wise counsel and strong community to say, how do I live in this unhealthy situation faithfully?
2: Wow. Um, this next question, this is the last question we have this morning, and it is also in the relationship realm. So um, in Mark 10, it talks about divorce. And if you divorce, you commit adultery. So, what if the couple divorces due to cheating or adultery when one person tries and tries, but the other person isn 't wanting the marriage? Would divorce then be justified in god 's eyes
0: Yes, and no uh, so for that i 'll say divor- or sexual immorality and unfaithfulness is the only thing given in scripture when divorce is acceptable because the idea is the two have become one flesh in every way, the two are one and sexual infidelity actually breaks that union God has already created. Um, So it is acceptable and it is permitted and also scripture gives us this invitation to strive for reconciliation and healing. And so uh, sexual infidelity does not mean you have to get divorced if you're willing and you're able um, to seek reconciliation, by all means, do that. In fact, I'd be more than willing to sit down with you and your spouse and help you walk through that together uh, in total confidence. And also, if after an attempt at reconciliation the spouse is absolutely not willing to work, not willing to love, it's okay um, for you to leave. Now. Whether or not you get remarried, that's a long conversation that will require, I think, a lot of healing and a lot of comfort first. I would not rush into that decision, and I would not do it without wise counsel. Um, I hope that helps. So, if you're in that that situation and you or your spouse have been unfaithful, there is always hope for healing, even if that healing might mean a time apart right now. Is that it?
2: That's it. Uh, there was one more comment. So to end on a lighter note, uh, I have to write a paper on the book of John this week. So thanks for the help, Pastor Adam. You're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome.
0: Well, before you go, I want to encourage you guys. uh, Normally, I give the benediction, which is going to come here in a moment. But I want to encourage you before you go, take a moment, look around. We're just like look to your left or look to your right. I know it's awkward. Don't worry. They're beautiful. (laughs) They look great. All right. Do you know the people sitting next to you? Like immediately next to you, yeah, you came with him. But what about like the pew over there or over there? All right, so here's what I want to encourage you to do. After this blessing, feel free to stick around long enough to say hello to somebody and like introduce yourself. And if that's really awkward, good, we'll all be awkward together, okay? Receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace.
1: Amen. Amen. See you next week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting the Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.